You're listening to Syntax, the podcast with the tastiest web development treats out there. Strap yourself in and get ready. Here is Scott Talensky and Wes Boss. Welcome to Syntax, the tastiest web development treat podcast out there. My name is Wes Boss. I'm a full stack web developer. And with me, as always, is Scott Talensky. How are you doing today, Scott? Hey, I'm doing super good. It's snowing like crazy here today. So it's a nice little winter wonderland out there. Can't wait to get out to the mountains at some point. How about you? That's exciting. I'm just laughing about the snow because last time this year we were talking about Blizzaks. Oh yeah, Blizzaks. And uh, I just bought a new set of winter tires to go on our car and I bought Blizzaks because I thought of how hilarious that was last year. Yeah, you just have to shout Blizzak, baby. Blizzaks. <laughs> so I got the got the Blizzaks getting put on on the shop right now. It was snowing a little bit this morning, but we sometimes don't get snow until like... January, February, about half the years we get, we don't get it until the new year. So we'll see if we get some this year. Nice. This episode today is sponsored by two types of books. <laughs> the first one is uh, Manning Books is coming on for a couple <laughs> episodes to sponsor. They are sponsoring uh, today with their React in Action book. It's going to teach you React from a book. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And then the second type of book is Fresh Books is sponsoring today. And they do, uh, it's the cloud accounting. I can tell you're really proud of that, that two <laughs> books joke. <laughs> Two books are sponsoring today, Fresh Books and Manning Books. Love it. So today is a potluck. We're going to uh, rattle through a whole bunch of different questions that you submit. If you have anything that you'd like us to ever talk about on the show, even if you think it's a big topic, put it in the potluck button, which is at syntax.fm. You can fill out the form, put your name in, put your question in. And uh, we will answer it on the show. Some of these uh, questions are really good ideas. Like somebody asked, how do you handle licensing? And and what do the different licenses mean? Or like, that's a good idea. We should do an entire show on all the different types of licenses out there and how to properly attribute work that has been licensed under something. Yeah. So if you're if your question doesn't get answered, it might get answered in more detail over the course of an entire episode. So uh, don't worry about that. Uh, but also just <laughs> feel free to submit anything. We have, uh, it's an infinity room on the, the question button. So just go ahead and submit all your questions and we will pick the ones that we uh, think are going to be useful to everyone. All right. First question is from Al Lemieux, which uh, brother to Mario Lemieux. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> the only thing I know about hockey. Yeah. <laughs> the question is, I listened to your episode on freelancing and I was wondering how to justify an increase in my hourly rate. You mentioned that you increased to 100 bucks an hour and nobody griped, but I seem to have a steady stream of clients who want things for free or nearly free. And I usually have that fear that if I charge them more, then I won't get business. Thoughts? Yeah, this one's tough because obviously you don't want to just be like, all right, here's your invoice. It's a hundred dollars an hour now. Pay it because that's gonna piss people off. So I think the the real thing here is don't increase your rate dramatically. One, so don't increase it dramatically. Two, don't increase it in the middle of a project. Like if the if the project was agreed upon at one rate, finish out that project before in increasing it. I think in an ideal world, you would be doing some value-based pricing and that way you're not haggling over an hourly rate. That way the uh, client is paying for the value and that way maybe you can low-key set up what your hourly is in maybe a more favorable manner for you in that regard. And you could present that as, well, the projects here I think would be better off if we were to bill on like a project basis or something for the next project and then try to get your clients agree to that rather than have them agree to all right, well, I was paying you 50 bucks and now you're going to be paying me 100 bucks. So I don't think that would work very well. Another thing is I wouldn't jeopardize a reliable client. Now, if it's an unreliable client, again, someone who's asking you to do a bunch of stuff for free, it sounds like, I might jeopardize that client and just straight up tell them, hey, my rate has now increased to this amount for the next project and see how they respond. I, I, I don't... For me, the fact that the client is asking for a lot of stuff for free is kind of a red flag. I guess that is sort of their duty as a business owner is to try to get a, as cheap a price for things as possible. But I don't know. That that makes me a little worried. Yeah, I think the way that I did it was new clients get new rates. So as you bring on new clients, when I said that I increased mine from 50 to 100 bucks an hour, I didn't just go to all my existing clients and, and do that. And at that time, most of my clients were doing value-based billing already, but for those who wanted hourly based billing because you were working on a larger team and you couldn't really just like work on a feature and, and quote it out because there are so many moving parts. Just new clients would get that 
that amount. Um, and then existing clients would would just get like maybe every I think about every year I would just do an increase of my hourly rate and say, hey, this is my amount. I just wanted to make sure that you're okay with it. Let me know your thoughts on that and increase it maybe $20, $30 an hour going up on there. At some point, you might have to say see you later to some of your clients just because they they just can't afford it or they're not willing to do it or they don't value your your stuff and that's fine because you're going to have you're going to have turnover on your clients and you're going to start to weed out some of these bad clients it sounds like that you have that are expecting things for free that might not also also be the case i think a lot of people think like oh i'm going to be totally gone and my business is there and if that's the case you're probably not worth what you're charging but it's worth trying uh, trying it out with your clients it's kind of like a game of chicken because your client doesn't want your rates to go up and and you do want them to go up, but your client doesn't want to see you go because you're likely doing good work and they don't want to have to find someone and train them and skill them up. So we have to do this with our sponsors this year as well, because next year our sponsors are going up 200 bucks per episode. So we have existing sponsors who want to come on for new ones and we say, hey, the price is going up. Are you still okay with this? Uh, And here is why. Here is why we're getting much more views than we were initially. You're getting really good value out of it. So I just wanted to run that by you as well. In most cases, if they're still seeing value, if the calculations still work out, then then they'll stick with it. Yeah, I think that's a good a good point too. the whole value of everything, the value like selling the the client on the value of the work, right? Chances are over time you've gotten better at your skills. And therefore, you're potentially in more demand and, and can request you're probably more money. faster, you're probably faster. Right. So you're you're able to provide the same amount of value in a shorter amount of time. So I think those are all, all key things to, to think about here. OK, next one we have is from AJ. AJ says, I started a YouTube web development channel. Recently, I was approached to produce content for money for another website. For some reason, I immediately thought I might be taken advantage of. I'm pretty new and odd to be offered something like this so quickly. No? If accepting, what do you think? Should I create content for a small website that I've never heard of or continue with YouTube or both? I have a lot of unique thoughts on this, specifically because (laughs) I've ran a YouTube channel and I've done content for myself and I've done content for other publishers. YouTube does not pay the bills, first and foremost. Uh, You can have you know, 200,000 subscribers and YouTube is not going to pay your rent, you know? So I wouldn't rely on YouTube to make a ton of money. The people that you see making a ton of money on YouTube are most likely making money outside of YouTube via brand deals and sponsorships. So again, I wouldn't rely on YouTube to make money. I would have YouTube be more of a marketing tool, have it be for fun, have it be to provide free content for the community, that sort of thing. For as terms of working with a publisher, I did a course for an, a publisher that I'm going to not name and they paid me a thousand dollar advance. And then, well, it turns out I learned a big lesson in royalties, even though I, I sort of understood royalties at the time. I actually, I did royalties for a record label. I, for some reason, did not take into account the situation. And and basically, I wasn't getting paid anything additional for sales for my course until the percentage that I earned, which was a small percentage, paid off the advance that I received. So even though the advance was only $1,000, it took a long time with the rate that I was getting from the course sales and I wasn't seeing any money. So it was really frustrating to see that they sold you know, hundreds of copies at this price and I was getting nothing for this still. Now that said, fast forward, you know, five years later, I'm getting $200 in the mail every quarter for royalties for this thing. So I've met my limit, but I would definitely say that definitively wasn't worth it. I think you need to calculate whether or not to quote an excellent movie, if the juice is worth the squeeze, right? Because like (laughs) if it is worth it, If it's worth your time, you're a new person, maybe you're going to get some experience doing this. If it's worth your time, go for it, right? Just be, you know, weigh the the benefits to the, the outcomes. I don't know about getting scammed here. Again, just make sure you have contracts, make sure you understand the agreement and make sure you understand what you'd be getting paid. That said, Level Up Tutorials is looking for new content creators. So if anyone is doing good content and would like to get paid to do it for Level Up Tutorials, reach out. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is an interesting one because I get contacted all the time by people who want me to. uh, The biggest one is people with these unknown platforms want me to take my content and put it on their platform and they'll take a generous 80 percent cut or or 50 percent cut or whatever it is that they want. The reason behind that is because it's, it's really hard to find content creators that are both really good and they're willing it to do they're willing to do it for somebody else. Yeah. So what they're likely doing is that they're they're just cruising YouTube looking for people like your stuff is probably really good. There's no link here, but I'm assuming they said this guy's brand new, but the stuff is really really good. This is some undiscovered talent. I'm going to try and uh and bring them on. So um that's good because you could if you want to make a little bit of money or you want to get some experience in that regard. It's 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 a way you could make some some quick money on that. Um, but in my career of making content and I go back to writing blog posts over the years, I've spent I've written maybe four or five blog posts for different people around the world. And for that, you get, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks. And uh, in the long run, it's almost always been worth it for me to write the blog post and put it on my own platform and then get the long tail effect of that of links to my courses, people finding it in SEO. While I didn't get like a huge bang right away, the long tail of that, the Twitter followers, the the site traffic, the link backs, all that stuff was was well worth it in the long run. Hey, that said, there's been sorry, say, go ahead. I was going to say like what what about exclusivity deals? Like what if they were to say Hey, we'll give you $200 to put this on our site, but you can also put it on yours. That seems like a that seems like a win-win. Does anybody do that? Yeah, to, like a redistribution. Yeah. Um I got actually an email in my inbox about that right now where somebody just wants to take some of my free stuff and put it on their website. I see this all the time with uh universities want to yep. package up my my courses and and offer it as part of the curriculum in there. So it's, it's hard to say because like I've also like early in my career, I wrote a blog post for CSS tricks on Sublime Text. And that was huge for me. I got tons of traffic. I made tons of sales. I got tons of followers from that. So obviously, if there's something big like CSS tricks, I would t- totally go for it. But I think if you're not hurting for money, it's definitely worth just trying to stick it out and and stay on your own platform and, and sort of own the content yourself because i think in the long run it's going to be be well worth it for you word yeah i don't it's it's kind of an interesting thing where there's lots of people out there who are trying to just like gather content creators and then there's there's lots of people out there who are content creators and and just want to do it themselves and uh, if you have the time i say do it yourself but also like like Egghead just rolled out this they got did you get the email west boss as a service they rolled out <laughs> <No>. which is <laughs> Apparently, a problem that Egghead is having is that people are looking at like people like me who are selling courses by myself and saying, like, why would I do a course for you if I could just do what Wes is doing and do it by myself? And the answer to that is that I've spent years building my own course platform. I have my own audience and stuff like that, whereas like most people don't necessarily have that. And Egghead is going to provide infrastructure and, and marketing and design support and and all of the e-commerce that comes along with it and the support email and all that like kind of heavy stuff that's hard that uh, I don't necessarily always talk about, which is uh, part of running it. So there is a spot for people who are trying to help you with your content. And then at the same time, like you've done videos for Sketch as well. Sometimes people just contact me and say like, I just need someone to go through our own product and make tutorial videos on how to use our product. We need to be able to send them to our clients. Yeah. And that that's always been been great for me to, to do content for companies like that that need uh, tutorial material. Again, I, I think it, it's for me, creating content isn't that difficult, especially on things that I use every day. So it, yeah. it's not like a huge time sink for me to make some of those videos. And it, it's a, a good return. Yeah, again, it, it, there's a there's a lot of factors to be considered in regards to any of this stuff. But I think we uh, I think we nailed it on most of those. Next, we have from Richard Kaufman. The question is, I've read on Twitter that react.context can be a good replacement for Redux. Why? And I think the, the key word in your question is can, because it absolutely can 
can be a good replacement for Redux. I think a lot of things can be a good replacement for Redux and other ones, maybe not so much, right? Redux offers, for those of you who don't know, basically a way to manage your state throughout an entire application in one sort of large store that's easy to sort of understand. It's easy to understand where the data is being loaded, how it's being loaded. Uh, there's some nice little features with the dev tools and getting that sort of time travel stuff. But the reason why people would say context is a, a good replacement for Redux is specifically because it allows you to manage the state of your application and take state or data from one part of your application and use it in another part of your application without an external third-party library. Now, granted, Redux is, is very ingrained in the React community. It's not really like you're adding something that who knows if it's going to go away at any time or whatever, but it basically allows you a lot of those features without having to add an external library is, I think, the big thing. It's part of React, right? So, I think that's that's why people would say it's it's a good replacement. That said, it doesn't replace all of the functionality. Again, it's a different way of doing your your state throughout your application. But again, it does provide you with that ability. Yeah, I think people use Redux just for the ability to inject it via the high order component. Now, the fact that you can just inject data wherever it is that you want with context is really good. And now with hooks, we did an episode last week on hooks we have the ability to use reducer. So you can even take some of your complex reducer logic and, and all of your actions and stuff that get fired off and dispatched. You can just move that into its own. So I definitely see between hooks and context and the suspense stuff that's coming up, I definitely see a lot less people reaching for Redux uh, in the next little bit, which is great because I think that for most people, Redux is too complex and it's unnecessary in, in a lot of use cases. So it will be exciting to see that the stuff gets easier. Yeah. Why use Redux when you can use something fresh like hooks? That brings me into our first sponsor of the day, <laughs> which is FreshBooks. I don't sincerely mean that you can. Redux is great still. I don't want people to think that I'm like, use hooks, don't use Redux. But yeah, so FreshBooks. Uh, is a longtime sponsor of Syntax. And let me tell you, that's just a great way to manage your accounting, which I should know uh, because I actually worked as an accountant at one point in my life. And it was no fun, probably because we weren't using FreshBooks. Uh, so it's a little bit more about <laughs> FreshBooks is West Boss. Yeah, so if you are um, trying to get paid nice and quickly from your clients, from uh, anyone that is that you're trying to collect money from, FreshBooks is what you're going to need to in order to to do that. So I use FreshBooks myself. I just log in, I create an invoice, send it over to the user, they're able to pay via credit card if I have that set up. I have a, a bunch of different types of currencies that people can pay me in. Sometimes I have to fly to the UK and I need to be reimbursed for a flight. So what I'll do is I'll put in my flight into my expense and then you can take that expense and automatically turn it into an invoice. You can attach specific expenses to specific customers and that will then turn it into, into an invoice for you. You can get paid in all those different currencies. You can have automatic billing reminders. So if someone forgets to pay it, they can do that. You can see if someone's seen your invoice yet. So if you log in and someone hasn't paid, you can say, oh, they haven't even looked at it. They didn't get the email or they looked at it three times and haven't paid me yet. And maybe it's time to to start knocking on their door to see what's going on. So if you're trying to run any type of business, you're trying to log your hours, you're trying to send invoices, you're trying to manage all of your expenses with the different types of taxes. I love FreshBooks for this because at the end of the year, tax time is coming up in a couple months for me. And I just need to simply export all of my all of my CVS or CSV files and uh, my accountant is super happy with that. So try it out at freshbooks.com forward slash syntax and use the code syntax in a how did you hear about us? You can get a 30 day unrestricted free trial. And that's not one of those trials where you have to put your credit card in and then they start charging you when you forget about it. You don't even need a credit card to sign up for this. So check it out. Thanks so much to FreshBooks for sponsoring. Thank you. Next up, we have a question from Christopher Robin. Um, Christopher Robin asks, yeah, Westfoss is smiling. Are you smiling because of the Winnie the Pooh thing? I'm pretty sure it's Winnie the Pooh that asked this, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, Chris, if, if you've been getting that your entire life. I'm sure that if that's his actual name, his entire life is people making Winnie the Pooh jokes at him. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I I'm sorry. I don't want to perpetuate that. <laughs> Here's the question. <laughs> What's it like running a podcast? 
And I love this. This is a fun question. We often do a lot of technical questions where this is a fun question because running a podcast is a lot of fun. You know, personally, it gives me an outlet to just blab on about things that I love without having to bug my wife about it. Right. So like I can't even count the amount of times I've been like, hey, Courtney, let me tell you about this technical thing that you don't care about. And she'll just like gloss over. Right. So for me, it gives me an outlet to just blab about this stuff without having to, I don't know, getting to talk to what is an audience that is also excited and interested about it. Right. Because uh, to me, a lot of this web dev stuff, the new things in web dev, while, you know, it can often be seen as like maybe JavaScript fatigue or, you know, too much stuff to me, it just excites me. There's a lot of great stuff always coming out. And honestly, uh, if I can just talk about it once, twice a week, whatever, it really psychs me up. So for me, running a podcast is a lot of fun. You get a lot of opportunities to spend some time learning things. And it, to be honest, it, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's been a blast. And I hope it continues to be a blast because it, it's been great so far. Yeah, I've, I've been really enjoying it as well. I think that for me, the biggest thing with the podcast is just a lesson in consistency. The fact that you, I both have Scott to record with every week, as well as I have these sponsors who have paid for the episodes ahead of time. You need to make sure that you actually make the content. Otherwise, you're pooched and you have to give the money back to the sponsors and things like that. So the fact that we've just been consistently doing it for what a year and a half so far, and we've only I think we missed one week. Somebody like did a visualization of our RSS feed of the podcast and just showed that we've been doing it for so long. And there was only one week where we've, we've missed it. And I thought that was pretty cool because where we travel a lot, we get sick a lot. We've got kids. We have bad bad sleep nights and we've been able to to make it work. And I think that's just a lesson for anyone where if you want to make something work like this, it's just keep at it and just do it week in, week out. It's not always easy. Sometimes we have unlimited topics to talk about. And other times we're like, hmm, what should we talk about today? What's something that's that's interesting? Yeah. There's always that person that gave up one week too soon, right? Like I've been making content for you know, seven months every single week and I haven't seen any movement. Well, maybe you were like one video away from the one that like broke out and gained you a ton of subscribers or something like that. For me, again, the consistency has always just been such a key thing in most things that I do. So again, yeah, I totally hear you with the consistency aspect of this. It's time to make the donuts. Totally. Well, the other thing I really like about the podcast is the uh, community. It's interesting because those who are listening to it, they listen to us like for probably an hour and a half every single week. And then you meet people at conferences or you get emails from people and they, they feel like they really know who you are because they listen to the podcast so often. And this community is awesome because there's people that are sort of helping each other. I know that we don't have like a, a Discord or a Slack or a Spectrum or anything like that, but even just like through Twitter, through people talking about the podcast is really cool to see that on Twitter. The sponsors is another really cool thing. Like the people who sponsor this podcast are mostly just web development companies trying to make the lives of us web developers easier, trying to make things like billing much easier. And I think that's really cool as well that we can have an audience and share things even like like Netlify is a really good example as well. We can share these these products that we're excited about that are actually helpful to our users and our users can discover them. So that's cool that you can help other companies grow as well. And I know that's sometimes a weird thing for people because like these are businesses and they're corporations trying to make money. But at the end of the day, they are you meet the people behind these companies and they're, they're just trying to make it work and they're trying to help developers. Yeah. We really do love our sponsors. I've never, ever felt like morally questionable about, you know, doing an ad read or anything like that. I've, I've never been like Garth from Wayne's World decked out in Reebok gear. <laughs> like it's for me, it's yeah. like always stuff that we use and love and it feels genuine because it, it is genuine. Totally. Like we've And people say, like, would you turn down a sponsor like that? And the answer is, yeah. We totally would, but we also don't have anyone who's running these like sketchy companies willing to like it's expensive to sponsor this podcast. So it's only companies that know it's going to absolutely work, work well for them. I also just like the like sick pics and everything, just like the the stuff that is like tangentially related to web development, whether how many people bought Scott's stupid drill brushes. <laughs> They're awesome, man. <laughs> or how many people bought the squeeze bottles that I recommended a couple of weeks ago? Like these are just like we're all humans and we all love fun stuff like that. So I think that's a really fun part of the podcast as well. Yeah. Speaking of sick picks, my sick pick today is very wholesome. <laughs> I, <laughs> I can't wait. It's bordering on, on weird, but uh, I'm, I'm excited for it. So <laughs> let's keep going to the next question. Uh, I like that one. Thanks for, for that question. Um, Chris Webb asks, I've seen a rise in the term full stack designer. 
Is this a title you've, you think will become a real thing? Is someone capable of overseeing a project from concept to prototype? Thanks. So it's funny that people always get bent out of shape over titles like this. And, and people say, no, that shouldn't be a thing. Even the word full stack really irks a lot of people. And I, I think with the exception of engineer, which I understand when people get irked about it, because an engineer is someone who's in most cases legally responsible and, and goes to school for however many years to get the certification. Past that, job titles are just job titles. You can call yourself whatever you want. The idea of a full stack designer is is kind of interesting. Like for sure, we, we will see people and there are lots of people who can design an amazing thing, prototype an amazing thing, pull it together, build up the entire scalable backend as well as do a really nice front end. I don't think that will be as popular as as you think it will be because just because like that's a huge breadth of knowledge that you have to understand what i do think that we are going to see is designers who can make a really nice thing but also can implement it maybe they can prototype with react or use some of these tools and build out the entire application and then you can lean on these services that are maybe serverless functions or or maybe something like a sanity io or netlify cms or any of these like sort of like backends that will do the heavy lifting for you and you can sort of just lean on them to, to pull in that data. So that's my thoughts around that. Yeah, I know. And I, I largely see it as a vanity title. I mean, most titles are kind of vanity titles in a lot of ways, right? I, I know what you're saying, like with the whole everyone gets hung up on the title. I, I get that. You know, I get it. Like I became, quote unquote, a senior developer early on in my career simply because the guy above me quit <laughs> and I was in that role, right? <laughs> like, but if you were to put me up against another senior developer, who knows? It, it's all like, it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Some people want like the government to come in and start like controlling <laughs> what people are called senior developers. Seriously. I totally agree. And so I largely see this vanity, this full stack designer as like a vanity name or, or whatever. Again, you're going to want to have a lot of these skills if you're a designer. I know it depends on the size of the agency or the company you're working at. But many times I've worked in companies where a full stack quote unquote designer was just a designer, just a good designer, right? It was, you needed to be able to do all of those things because there was only six people working at this company and we don't have the money to pay, you know, someone to just do UX design, you better do all of it. So for me, it doesn't really matter. Again, I wouldn't get hung up on any of this stuff. Everyone who's a full stack developer has a like one area that they're the most strong in anyways. And it's going to be the same thing for designers. So again, like I could refer to myself as a front end developer, but I work on the the full stack of my application. Therefore, I'm a full stack developer. Am I good at the full stack? I'm decent at the full stack. Am I the best at it? No, I'm probably not the best at it. But, you know, I think, again, it, it's worth saying that it's it's really just, it doesn't matter. It's vanity. You can call yourself whatever you want at the end of the day. My first job title was an interactive producer, and uh, I held on to that one for, for a little bit, and it was totally meaningless. Okay, so uh, next up we have Mike. I want to say this is Roach. But this is how my dad spells his first name, R-O-C-H, and my dad pronounces it Rock. There's a, a Saint Rock and some sort of, I don't know what the Saint Rock is from, but that's how he pronounces it. So it's either Mike Rock or Mike Roach. I'm sorry if people call you one or the other. The question is, what has been the most awkward situation you've been in as a dev? And I've been, I've been in some fairly awkward situations in agency life, and I'm not going to name the agency or the people involved in this, but if any of my coworkers are listening to this podcast, they're probably <laughs> very aware of this situation. One time we were in a meeting, maybe like a year into a very uh, in-depth project. It's a big project, big team. And uh, we, we were very intensely into this project and all of a sudden an argument broke out in one of our team meetings where there's like 30 people sitting around a table and my boss and it was basically you know our boss who's the boss of the devs and then there's three devs below him he starts going off at the project manager like berating her just like yelling at her in a very inappropriate way uh, about photoshop files it was so meaningless and he just he went off and I'm, I'm sure he was going through some personal stuff or whatever that led to that situation. But it was super uncomfortable for everyone in the meeting. He then stormed out of the meeting. She quit the project. I mean, she didn't quit the company. She asked to be assigned to a different project, rightfully so. 
And then we just sort of came into work for two weeks where our boss was then put on like a leave. And we came into work for two weeks without any knowledge of like what's going to happen to him or what's going to happen to our project or what's going to happen to <laughs> us. And we we just sat there. We'd come into work every day. Do you guys hear anything yet? Uh, I don't know. We'd see like we'd see, uh, you know, higher ups talking sort of by us and maybe pointing at us like it was so uncomfortable for about two weeks. And then all of a sudden, like two weeks later, the boss of our boss, or I don't even know what this guy's role is. He took us into a conference room and he's like, so your boss has been put on leave for about a month. And we're just like, okay, (laughs) what are we going to do? And then unceremoniously, like a little bit through that time, they were just like, oh yeah, by the way, he's been fired. (laughs) We're just like, okay, great. So we had no, but I'm pretty, I don't remember ever getting another, we ended up just managing ourselves for the rest of the project. It was totally bizarre and it was super awkward and it was definitely an awkward couple of weeks while we were just sort of sat in limbo. Uh, That was, that's definitely the most awkward situation I've been in as a developer. I haven't been in a whole lot, but the the one that sticks out to me that makes me want to stick my head in the sand is uh, luckily I didn't do this, but I was on a working at an agency during my co-op and the the client was being really difficult and uh, the emails were getting a little fiery back and forth because they just weren't understanding what was going on. And uh, the PM of the project replied all and they meant to just reply to our team on the thread. Oh. Um, and they, they said something about how like the client was being dumb. And I think they put a swear in there. <laughs> they put a and, swear then, in uh, there. <laughs> and then like like 20 minutes later, once everyone realized what had happened, we're kind of just sitting there being like, what do you do to come back from that? Where you just called out the client to their email. Oh, no, you don't. And then they sent a follow up email being like, look, everyone, let's get through this. <laughs> I totally forget what it was, but they saved, they somewhat saved it. But I, I just, cr- I'm just cringing right now. just thinking about that happening again. And oh, that was like, no. like, like probably like 10 years ago that that happened. Oh, that's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Next question we have here is from Nate Spillman. Do you have any good resources on JWT? I'm unclear when my front end needs to send what to my back end to ensure sites sites and only my sites can get the data requested from my server. Thanks for everything you do. All right. So JWT stands for JSON Web Tokens. It's a way that you can do authentication from your client to your server. Basically, the way that it works is when you sign in, you get back this token from your back end and you store that token either in a cookie or in a your local storage. And then every time you make a request from your back end, to your front end, then you send that JWT along for the ride, and that's how you know that you are are signed in. JWT is kind of kind of cool as well because you can put information in your JWT, things like uh, you could put like an avatar. Most likely, you're going to put your user's ID in there. You could put a list of permissions, things that are just handy info about the user that you need without having to make a round trip to the server to request info about the user. Resources on that, um, I use it on my new advancedreact.com uh, course. Uh, we do JWT from scratch, so that it's not using Auth or or any like existing solution or Passport JS or anything. Like that it's just right from scratch surprisingly simple to to implement we don't implement all of the different features that you can which is like you can like make them not expire but you can make like a blacklist adam wathen has a really good podcast called uh full stack radio and he just did a really good episode let me pull up the name of it real quick episode 98 with ryan chinky securing single page applications that was a really good look into um all of the different upsides and downsides to using j JWT over something like sessions and cookies. But to answer the other part of that question, how do you make sure that only your backend can get data that requests a server? That's where cores starts to come in. Generally, when you set up your backend server, you will list a bunch of domain names that are allowed to make requests from yours. And, and that's that's how you make sure that you can only send them from that domain name. And anyone else who were to get access to that JWT can't send them from different domain names. Nice. Yeah, cool. And I mean, if you're interested in learning React via video, you can check out Wes's advancedreact.com course. But if you're interested in learning React via a book, 
Well, I think we have a great place for you to do that. There you go. Yeah, which is at uh, <laughs> manning.com forward slash books forward slash react hyphen in hyphen action, a.k.a. react in action via Manning Publications is a great way for you to learn React if you're the type of person who prefers to learn from a book, which I know there is a ton of you because so many people message me saying, I don't want to learn from video. And I say, well, tough because I can't write books. Uh, but Manning, <laughs> Manning, they they have authors who are very talented at writing books. So it's a little bit more about React in action as Wes. Yeah. So you want to check us out. I, I get this all the time as well. People email me like, I would love to do your video, but that's not the way I learn. And I totally understand that. Not everyone likes to, to learn coding from watching videos. They much rather just sit down with a book and a pencil and read through the entire book. So this is an awesome book if you want to check out Learning React via a book. It's called React in Action by Mark Thomas. And it's a 360 page book. So that's a pretty hefty book. It goes into everything about from scratch. So you learn React, you build your hello world component, you learn about data flow, passing data through it. You learn about all the lifecycle methods inside of React, working with forms inside of React, integrating third party libraries with React all the way through. If you go to the end of this thing, you're looking at using things like React and Redux together, using um, different state managers, using React on the server. So check it out at manning.com forward slash books forward slash React in action. And there's dashes where the spaces would normally go. Thanks so much to Manning for sponsoring. They're going to they've got a bunch of shows coming up and we're going to be um, sort of spotlighting a different book on every single one that we have. So thanks so much to them for coming on for that. Yeah, thank you, for Manning. First time sponsor. Or this is the first time they've sponsored an episode, I should say. So thank you. Yeah. How do you move selected text horizontally or vertically in VS Code? I've seen it in Wes's videos. I tried to ask him on Twitter, but I'm sure that's a chore to keep up with. Yeah, sometimes people ask me questions late at night or on weekends. And then by the time I come, my Twitter feed is much past that. So I don't see them all that come in. I Googled a ton. I didn't see anything. All I found was an extension that adjusts auto indentation, which is not what I'm after. So this is a question I get all the time. It's one of my favorite features of VS Code. I'll start with the vertical moving of the text. Um, that's something called I call line bubbling. If you just Google West Boss line bubbling, I have a video on how to do it in Sublime Text but it's exactly the same in VS Code. Basically, you just select your lines that you want. So you could either just put your cursor on one line or you could select multiple lines. Then in at least in my uh, editor config, you hold down the option key and hit your arrows and just use your, your arrow keys to go up and down and that will just swap out your lines. I much prefer that line bubbling versus like cutting code and pasting it in Yeah, because you can see where it's going. That's one of my favorite VS Code shortcuts. The other one that I have is how do you move text horizontally. Generally, what people are referring to, because they see that they see me do this in my tutorial, it's where you, you select a bunch of text on multiple lines. Like if you have uh, like a label in the, the for attribute is like for name, for phone number, for email, I'll copy name, phone number, and email. And then I'll, and what I'll do in that case is I'll, I'll just copy it and then use my arrow keys to move my cursors to the right of that. And then I'll paste it in. And if you have the same amount of items in your clipboard as you have cursors on your page. So if you have three items in your clipboard and you have th three cursors on your page and you paste it, then they will not paste that those three items three times over. They'll paste the first item on the first line, the second item on the second cursor and the third item on the third cursor. And that, that, that's one I don't think a lot of people know about. And it's extremely helpful when you're doing repetitive coding, like like trying to to do forms on a page. Word. So. Yeah. Big fan of that. That's how I do it. Um, I will at some point do a VS Code course because people ask me all the time how I do these things and these little tricks. And it's it's frustrating because I also use the sublime text keyboard shortcuts. Oh, so if I, I even tell that. somebody what I'm touching on my keyboard, it's not not necessarily the same thing for them. I know for vertically it is option option up down. Yeah, yeah. option up down is with sublime. It was a different one, but I just used the uh, VS Code one which is good. My only recommendation to people is that when you're trying to do something, just open up your command palette and just type like move up. I just typed move up and I found it in my command palette, move line up. And then it tells you what the keyboard shortcut is. And, and there you go. So it, it's not this like hidden thing where I have access to all of these shortcuts that no one else could possibly know. It's the fact that if I don't know how to do something, 
I look it up in my command palette and then I, I look at what the keyboard shortcut is and then I use that and then I do that like 10 times and then hopefully someday I'll remember it and I don't have to look it up. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, the command palette is open by command shift P that yep. will bring it up and you can if just you're on windows just go buy a mac oh. and then it will work <laughs> Chuck, there's some keyboard truck on windows as well uh, that's gonna get some emails okay next <laughs> time we have somebody who did not leave their name but the question is good it's also a question that we sort of answered before in the last episode i believe so but i wanted i wanted to take some a little bit more time on this one the question is how do you recommend providing feedback on bad codes to a developer more experienced than you without coming off as uppity know-it-all junior who just read a bunch of textbooks. I'm digging into a code base that is full on spaghetti, not the not the tasty kind. I like that little side note. We all like tasty oh, spaghetti. Oh man, spaghetti, let's side note, spaghetti is the only food in the world that I will not eat. It's, it makes me want to puke. That's messed up. Uh, Disgusting. Ne- yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's messed up. <laughs> full of enormous, tightly coupled files doing multiple things in lengthy, terribly named functions and is sopping wet, repetitive mess. So much bad practicing is going on here. I have no idea how this is supposed to scale. It's a client product, so it is supposed to. I'm not an expert. I didn't build this house, but I'm supposed to live here. So help. OK, yeah. <laughs> so this one, it's important because, again, the thing you don't want to do is you don't want to go to the more experienced developer and be like, WTF, man, like, what's up with this? Where, why'd you do this stuff? Why'd you do this? Because you don't know the history of this project. If anything, I would ask them what's like the history of the code base and what's the situation. Maybe they were given like one day to do it and just had to cobble together something. Maybe they were handed this code base from another developer from who got it from another developer who got it from another developer. I've experienced all of these things in my time working in agencies where you might think that someone is responsible for something, but who knows? It was actually the guy four people before that them and well they didn't leave any any anything good behind and everyone's just sort of been dragging this project along ever since every developer who's ever touched it so for me the last thing you want to do is start blaming or assuming that anyone in particular is responsible for anything next i would say like how you said it has to scale as in this is a long-term project i guess to what extent does it have to scale if it has to scale a lot and you can provide the resources to start rewriting things then i might go for that but i would only do so with permission i wouldn't say just start doing it going rogue you're not james bond going rogue here you should ask your boss uh whether or not like that's a good idea uh, because you have some concerns in either case i think uh if you notice this is a pattern with this particular developer maybe you know for a fact that they wrote this project and maybe they wrote a couple of other bad projects i wouldn't go to that that developer anyways I, i i wouldn't do that I would go to your manager and I wouldn't necessarily say tattle on them or something like that. That's not what this is about. Say maybe you have some concerns about so-and-so's projects for maybe these reasons and maybe uh, we could work together to resolve it because chances are maybe it's maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's the person not maybe it's just the person not realizing that other people are looking at their code and thinking it's bad. But either way, I would take all of the blame out of everything. It's not a blame situation. It's a team thing. And you want the team to be best. So again, don't go to your boss and tattle on this person, but maybe just ask some questions and see if you and the rest of your team can work together to improve this code base. I agree. I have nothing really to add to that. It's definitely a hard place to be in where the person who is supposed to be supposed to be able to mentor you and, and, and move you where um, the code is just not very good. And it's it's a hard place to get through. But I think what Scott said is, is really important to to think about first. Next question is from Ryan. Uh, how do you set up an IP whitelist? I'm getting started managing databases and I am using Mongo Atlas. So this is actually a bit of funny. Um, you know, MLab, one of our past sponsors and the the host I've used for my own MongoDB host, they got bought like like a week after we did the, the sponsor podcast for them and uh, they got bought by MongoDB. They've had their own product called Atlas, which is kind of interesting because uh, MongoDB just bought them up because MLab was awesome. Um, that's an aside. It's people. A lot of people have been asking like, hey, what are your thoughts on MLab being bought? And I'm like, I think I'm, I'm happy about that because that means that the quality of 
MLab will hopefully be moved over to the uh, the product that MongoDB has, which is called Atlas. They require an IP whitelist for all connections. Developing from my computer is fine because I can just add my IP to the whitelist. But what do I do if I actually want to make my API or website public. Just whitelist everything. That sounds like a terrible idea. All right, this is a good good question here. Generally, you do want to whitelist your, your database, which means that no one can have access to your database, even if they have the username and password, unless their IP address is on a list of accessible IP addresses. And for a public-facing website, you generally don't have your public directly access your database. Generally, what happens is that your your users access your server, and then your server just talks to your database. And and in WordPress land, a lot of times your database and your your database and your your code is even running on the same machine. But in a lot of use cases, your database runs on one server somewhere, and then your actual code runs on a different one. You need to figure out what is the IP address of your server as well as what is the IP address of your, your develop machine, development machines. Um, a lot of companies make you sign into a VPN before you even do any of this work. That The reason behind that is because they only want access through their company's network, not through some random rogue coffee shop Wi-Fi where you could be sniffed in the middle. So that's the answer to that is that you don't need, you just have to whitelist your actual server as well as your development uh, machines which are directly connecting to that. And then you don't have to whitelist your actual server itself. There's things you can do there in terms in making sure that you don't get DDoSed or, or someone doesn't take advantage of your API. That's a whole nother show uh, we'll probably do at some point, but you don't need to to worry too much about that. Dope. Yeah, I think this yeah. this leads into a, a bigger point is that we need to do an episode on security stuff, which we have in our listing. I think it just needs to happen sometime sooner where we can talk about uh, just some things as front end or full stack developers that you need to be aware of when dealing with security in general. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. It's just like knowing about all of these different things that you don't necessarily like. These are the things you need to do, but you should be aware of. IP whitelisting, you should be aware of rate limiting and you should be aware of like different types of rate limiting and and what a DDoS attack is and, and why it could could pull you down. So coming up. Coming up. All right. Also coming up is sick picks. Uh, I see you have a nice little uh, sick pick here. So do you want to go first with your sick pick? Yes. So uh, a couple podcasts ago, I sick picked my um, FIFO bottles for the kitchen and I said, I've got a whole bunch of little kitchen gadgets. Um, that I find really helpful. And generally my kitchen gadgets boil down to what do they actually use in restaurants? Because that's, I think that's the most productive thing you can use and the best quality you can use. So uh, my next one is on uh, baking sheets and parchment paper. So uh, in, in terms of baking sheets, I never like to use the like black colored cheap baking sheets because the metal that's used in those baking sheets are really thin. And what happens is when you heat them up, if they're the really thin kind, they'll start to warp, which is not a big deal. But sometimes you hear like something in your oven go bunk. And that's bunk. because your, your baking sheet has has warped. And that's usually OK. Sometimes you got juices in that. But the, <laughs> the scary part is when you take it out and it starts to cool down, it warps back. And if you've got like hot juices on the baking pan, I've had it happen to me before where it warps back and goes bunk. And then and you get hot juices going everywhere you don't want that uh so that's my sick pick there and then the, my real sick pick today is when you buy these baking sheets that are like silver um and they're like really thick you i often put parchment paper down before i i cook anything and it's a pain because the parchment paper that you get at the store is not like cut to fit these like restaurant baking sheets so what I do, and, and then when I used to work at, I used to work at Tim Hortons, which is like the donut shop. It's the most Canadian uh, job ever. The most Canadian job ever. But we had these pre-cut parchment paper that you would just grab a sheet and throw it on the, the baking sheet and it would fit perfectly. And then you just crumple it up and throw it out when you're done. And I love that because you never have to like have misfitting parchment paper or sometimes the parchment paper doesn't rip off on the box properly. And if you have a big leaf of paper flopping around in the oven, that can catch on fire. So um, I just went and bought, uh, I think, a sheet, 500 sheets of pre-cut parchment paper. And it's like make, makes my life so much better. So that's my sick pick today. That's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, Tim Hortons pro tip. Nice. Sick. Tim Hortons pro tip. 
Yeah. yeah. Actually, that's one of the things I miss about living in Colorado because we had Tim Hortons all over Michigan, right there, because we're we're oh, yeah. so close to the border right there. And Colorado, nope, nothing, 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 um, nothing. There's I, one in Dubai, which is funny. There's not even one in Colorado. I don't know if there's not one, but they they were like everywhere, and like they're in the the frequency of Tim Hortons would be like not necessarily Starbucks level, but definitely approaching it in, in Michigan. It, they're, they're very wow. frequently all over the place. Yeah. I'm sure there might be one here somewhere that I would have to like drive 20 minutes to go to or something. Oh, not worth it. Not it's worth not even it. that good. No, it's like, not. Every, no. The, the kind of the idea about Tim Hortons here is like, that's okay. Yeah. That's about it. <laughs> Get some Tim bits. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. It's fun. It's, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Okay. So my sick pick is bordering on like, it's exceedingly wholesome is the only way I can describe this. It's a YouTube channel. This YouTube channel has 600,000 subscribers. It's a big time YouTube channel. And it, I don't know how to pronounce this. So I'm guessing it's gel, J-E-L-L-E, gels marble runs, which is, this is going to sound absolutely ridiculous. And I'm already like laughing at the fact that this is my sick pick, but it is YouTube videos of marble races. This guy sets up these courses of marbles racing, and then they have a commentator who is as good as any professional sports commentator commentating these things. All of the marbles have names. They have fake stands in the audience where like, there's a fake audience (laughs) of marbles watching, and... Uh, he refers to these marbles as if they're like human beings. So if like the marble falls off the course, they'll be like, well, they're going to be thinking about that one in the off season. And, and, and the, the whole thing <laughs> is bordering on completely absurd. But I guarantee you, if you put one of these on, it is hard to shut off. I ended up watching like I would be embarrassed to tell you how many marble runs I watched when I was sick with the stomach flu. And I was like, I was maybe even delirious by the end of it. I was sitting on the couch watching it and just cracking up and Courtney would be like, are you watching another marble run? Are you actually sitting down to watch this? I'm like, I've been watching it all day. I have had this on all day. <laughs> so, these things are awesome. They have the marble Olympics, which are very entertaining. The marble winter <laughs> Olympics, they have just generic like runs down like a Sandy Hill. And then they have some like more ridiculous courses. Either way, this thing sounds like it's the most absurd thing on the planet. Just watch a video it's totally bizarro and, in my opinion, extremely entertaining. However, I think that's probably exceedingly subjective. So uh, check it out if you are the if you're interested in some good wholesome YouTube content that may take <laughs> you down a rabbit hole of watching marbles race each other for hours. Awesome. Shameless plugs today. I'm going to plug my React course again, advancedreact.com. I also am going to plug upcoming Black Friday sales. So a lot of people have been asking me, hey, are you going to have a Black Friday sale again? Answer to that is yes. It will be around Black Friday. When is Black Friday? Couple weeks. Week? Yeah, I think. Week from now? I oh, got I it. think maybe by the time this comes out, it will just be a couple days. So get ready for that. Yeah. All of my courses are going to be on sale for Black Friday look out for some annoying emails with big countdown timers from me soon. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and also give a large Black Friday shameless plug here. I'm going to be doing big Black Friday sales as well for both the subscriptions and all of my courses. So either way that you like to consume my content, if you are interested in a yearly subscription, I would suggest heading on over to leveluptutorials.com for the Black Friday sales. Again, uh, all of the same things Wes just said with the big old annoying countdown timer and stuff. So uh, yeah, check it out. Black Friday's coming up. And I also have a new course this month, which was Pro Gatsby 2, a recreated version of Pro Gatsby in which we actually use Gatsby 2 and we spend a lot more time on the core foundational concepts of Gatsby to give you a little bit more of a knowledge base there. So check it out, leveluptutorials.com forward slash pro. And that's all I got today. How about you? That's it. See you next week. See ya. Peace. Peace. Head on over to syntax.fm for a full archive of all of our shows. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player or drop a review if you like this show.